Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the BitCast. It's me again, the Axeman, also known as Alex, and I feel like every time I provide my first name, it's because I have a guest who knows me by that name. As usual, I'm joined by... Guest the Henry. Okay, so we're going to talk about the Zelda series, because we both happen to just really enjoy the series very much. I have at least four other episodes on the series on this podcast, making it my most talked about series at this point. And Zelda is my absolute favorite series of all time. Yeah, it's my second favorite, like right after Mario, so it's a little surprising I haven't talked about that series a little more, but... Hey, we're here, we're going to talk about Zelda games, we're going to talk a little bit about our history and feelings and fun facts about every main Zelda game, from the first one to Breath of the Wild. We're not going to include the Philips CDI things, because those don't count. I've actually played one of them, and they are terrible. Yeah, 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 they are as bad as people say, and Hyrule Warriors... Not going to include that. We're not going to talk about Link's crossbow training. Yeah, let's. We're not going to talk about the Tingle games. Oh yeah, that that's so important to the war. Yeah, we're just going to talk about the main Zelda games, the original game, The Legend of Zelda. I have not played this one actually, but I have seen a playthrough of it. I have played it, never beaten it. I have seen a full playthrough of it, and I've watched plenty of randomized runs of this as well. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it came out in 1986, if I recall correctly. 86 in Japan, 1987 in the U.S. All right. I can see that this is not a game I would enjoy personally because I would get lost. It's kind of like Breath of the Wild in that sense. and That game was kind of trying to be this game, so... Except Legend of Zelda 1 does not have a good map. I think a lot of the fun from... To hear other people describe it is kind of making the map and remembering the rules as you go all by yourself to feel like a real explorer or something. Right. Keep in mind that back when this game was released, there was no internet, so you couldn't just look up the stuff. You had to map it out yourself. Yeah. I, I kind of had a bit of explorative freedom like that when I played Wind Waker a bit, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. The first game... uh it is the first game in the series, and it is the land, and it was a landmark title, uh, not just from a gameplay perspective, but also from a technical one. Mm-hmm. It was the first NES game to use a battery backup system. Really? Yes. So you could save directly to the game rather than having to use a password system. Okay, so you could pick up where you left off. Yes. Okay, that's very... I can see that they've kept that feature. Although, to be fair, it was also kind of clunky at the time. As it was easy to lose the memory. Oh, yeah, they hadn't perfected it yet. And, and the battery, and the batteries in those cartridges kept dying as well. So, mm. Zelda Two: The Adventure of Link. The only one in the series did not have the Legend of in front of it. It's also the only one to be side-scrolling and an RPG. Uh, yeah, there were side-scrolling segments in certain future games, but this was the one game where it was sideways the whole time. It was kind of considered a black sheep by a lot of people, but it has its fans. It was the one that actually introduced the magic system that we see in later Zeldas. Oh, yeah, a lot of things that were introduced in this game are still kept around to this day. Like, uh, including one piece of the lore, uh, Zelda 2 was the one that introduced the third piece of the Triforce. Oh, yeah. It also was the first appearance of Dark Link. Yes, it was. 
the main thing here is, that, like I said, it's an RPG. You go around, you slay monsters. Basically, Final Fantasy, except instead of it being a turn-based system, it is action RPG. Yeah, this is the game I probably know the least about in the series, because I haven't even watched a playthrough of this one. I've seen a full playthrough of it. I have played it myself. Again, never beat it. Yeah, I, I, I do know some things about it. I know that Ganon is not in this game at all, so right from the second game in the series, they were already willing to keep a member of the big three out of the game. Yep, he's actually, because this is... One of the few times there's a direct sequel in the Zelda series. This is a direct sequel to the first one. Right. Uh, fun fact. This is also before they gave Hyrule its own religion. Miyamoto originally wanted it to be Christianity. Which is why you can find a cross in the game. I don't know if he did it for religious reasons or if he just wanted the imagery of like the Crusades or something. Because they, they do things for style sometimes. True, but then Nintendo looked at him and said no. Yeah, that was that was back in the day where you had to be a little more hush-hush about those kinds of overtones. Right. A Link to the Past. We can dedicate an entire episode to this just on me alone. This was the game I grew up with. I started with Link to the Past. Oh yeah, I remember this one when I was very young too. I was six years old, just finally got a Super Nintendo for the first time. That was the game that came with it. Fell in love with it immediately, even though it took me years to finally beat it. Mm. This is kind of interesting for me because it's one of those games where... I also had it around a lot growing up, even even though I didn't play a lot of it myself, I'd watch my dad play it or my brother would play it. Sometimes I would play it, but I'd just mess around, but none of us ever really beat it until we were all much older, so this game and Super Mario RPG kind of show that weird spot where the ending of the game is still kind of surreal to me because we never achieved it until much later on. This also introduced a lot of mainstays for the Zelda series, both in lore and in uh, gameplay. It went back to the top-down format of the, orig- of the original Zelda, but it introduced the tradition of once you find an item in a dungeon, keep it equipped until the end of the dungeon. It introduced the Master Sword and the theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the musical themes that are used in the games are introduced in this one. It also introduced the Master Sword have Well, technically Zelda 1's sword had the uh, beam attack coming out of it, but the Master Sword specifically has it here. Yeah, and this was one of the first games to have Link go through two versions of the gameplay world. The light world and the dark world. Yeah, because other games would kind of keep that duality, but they would do it in different ways. This is also the first game to show that Hyrule is a parallel dimension to quite a few different parallel dimensions. The Dark World being just one of them. Yeah, the Dark World, which is secretly the Golden Realm. And I feel like, while we're still in the safe zone of talking about really old games, we should mention that we're going to get into spoiler talk for a lot of the other relevant games. Right. This is also the first one to introduce more war... Well, okay. Zelda 2 had a little bit more, but Link to the Past also expanded upon the lore of the Triforce itself. Yeah, the lore started getting a little more palpable with this one. It has a lot of the formula that is still, well, I guess it's not really being used right now, but it introduced a formula that was used in a lot of the other games where you do three dungeons or at least three trials of some type, then you have a middle dungeon of the game, and then the second half of the game is a little more open-ended and you can do more things before you finally confront the villain at the end. This game also introduced the, um, I've said Master already, the hookshot. Yeah, a lot of items are introduced in this one, including the hookshot, which is a favorite of mine. And there are also a lot of items introduced that are never used again, like the cane of Birna. Yeah, or the magic cape. They, it was, 
you get the feeling that they were they were still a little experimental with Link's inventory. Yeah, they were, but it still had your mainstays. It had bombs. It had the bow and arrow. This one also had the silver arrows. Next is Link's Awakening, the first Game Boy Zelda game. Yeah, the first time the series goes portable, and it's also one of the first games to get a remake a few years later for the Game Boy Color, Link's Awakening DX. This was also the first one to not have Zelda in it. Nope. Zelda was... She was mentioned in the first one. I don't remember if you actually saw her at the Yeah, end she's of at the end of the first one. Okay. She's in the coma in the second one. And then you you save her in the third one. Yeah, this is the first one to not have Zelda at all. Or Ganon. Or Ganon. Yeah, because... Well, I mean, it's the first one to have neither of them. Yep. It's only Link. And it is a direct sequel to Link to the Past. Mm-hmm. It's pretty unique in its own way. It's the first one to make it so the shield is a separate item rather than just being a part of the character model. Yeah, but uh, before we get to the fun facts, like, you you have any special history with Link's Awakening? This was one of the first Game Boy Color games I ever owned. I owned the DX version. Really? Yes. I actually grew up, and I grew up with that, too. Okay. Because at the time, I had just come off Link to the Past, and I, well, loved Zelda, and my parents knew that. I didn't grow up with this game. I wasn't really introduced to it until near the end of high school, actually. And I do have it on my original 3DS, even though I never got very far with it, but... I beat it years ago as a kid. Oh, well, I, I figured. But one of the first things I learned about this game was the big twist that everything was actually a dream. But I like to think that they still pulled off the twist in a pretty haunting way that still kind of gets me because... Even though I knew what happened, they, they still kind of sucker punched me with it. So I still say it's a very memorable moment is in between the fifth and sixth dungeon. You go to that little desert palace and they've got the sad music playing as you figure out exactly what's going to happen. Right. And there's hints of that throughout the entire game anyway. Yeah, there's little hints, but that's when the game just drops the bombshell. And it's just like, oh, here it is. Yeah, and the bosses get more and more concerned as as you kill them all and save more of the islands. Like, no, we're all gonna die. Ah. Yeah, and guess what happens at the end? They all kind of die because it's all been a dream of the windfish. Yeah, except Link. No, no, Link's real because he actually got stranded on there. Yeah, there's a lot of uncertainty as to Link's position related to everything in the game. Now it's interesting that if you go through the whole game without dying, Marin, who is kind of the de facto love interest type character. She she still makes it out if you go through the whole game without dying. That is interesting, actually. I wonder if that ties to her appearing in Hyrule Warriors. It's possible. That's the same Marin or not. Now, I didn't mention this back in Link to the Past, but that game had a flute. This one actually starts showing a little bit more uses of the flute. Oh yeah, music became more of a prominent thing with this one. Link's ability to play different songs. Right. It wasn't wasn't as big here as it is in later games, but it started here in Link to the Past. Yeah, and they did a lot of weird Mario references for some reason. Yeah, they had Goombas. There's a part where you you literally babysit a chain chomp. Yeah, there's Wart from Mario Bros. 2, which was also a dream. Oh, uh, there's the trading sequence that starts with a Yoshi doll. Yeah, and and to get away from Mario, there are these Kirby-type enemies... Yeah, it's kind of weird how they did... That was back during the time when a lot of Nintendo properties were just kind of overlapping anyway. Yeah, well, they still do that to an extent, but now they're a lot more they're a lot more tongue-in-cheek about it. Right, and the games themselves tend to be a little bit more self-contained. Um, technically, Zelda 2 started Link jumping, but this is the first top-down game where Link jumps. Right. Not including jumping down ledges in Link to the Past. 
Right. Technically, there were always the power. There was the power glove in Link to the Past, but this one introduced the power. No, no, no. I'm sorry. Uh, Zelda One had the power bracelet, I believe. I don't. I mean, I, I don't really know much about the first game, so I can't help you with that right. one. I know this one had the power bracelet. So you can see how the first few games really set the tone for a lot of things that would get used in the future Zelda games. Now we're going to move on to the fifth game. One of the big ones, obviously, is Ocarina of Time. The first one released for the Nintendo 64 saw Link in a 3D environment, and it with it brought a lot of gameplay changes. Oh yeah, it's widely regarded as one of the best games of all time, though now it's kind of popular to say, hey, it wasn't that good. Yeah, it is kind of popular. I, I personally like to say it hasn't aged well. I think the 3DS <laughs> version definitely helps it to hold up more. That's why they made the 3DS version. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny that Link's Awakening, the fourth game... Ocarina of Time, the fifth game, they're both portable now, so it's... Yeah! If, if, imagine some really, really gullible person who thinks that that's actually how the progression went. They made Link's Awakening for Game Boy, and then they made Ocarina of Time for 3DS. That's a huge gap. Yeah. I have a lot of nostalgia for this game, as most people do. It was one of the first games that I was really ever introduced to. Likewise here, it was, uh, I, again, I'd always been a big Zelda fan, so when Ocarina of Time came out, it was just a natural fit. Did you recognize it as the same series as <laughs> Link to the Past? I, well, it had Zelda in the title. Yeah, but did you, like, really think it was, like, the same guy or anything? The same world? Or... I, when I was younger, I didn't really think about it much. Mm. Uh, nowadays, obviously, we all know, know that they are two separate Links. Well, I mean, just, like, not even in terms of lore, I just mean, did you know that it was Link? I, yeah, I figured it was at least Link. Okay. Two of my most profound memories of the game, one of them is the Forest Temple. That place was really weird, and I think that kind of started my appreciation of, you know, surrealism. Not, not that I'm, like, a huge, like, buff on that subject, but it's something that I can appreciate, and... I also like, you know, the entire endgame sequence, because I remember when I was watching my dad fighting Ganon for the first time, it was raining outside pretty badly, just as it was in the game. <laughs> my biggest experience with this was the fact that it was the, uh, well, at the time for me, it was the first Zelda I ever played that was kind of open world. Kind of? Like, even more than the Dark World? Dark World was pretty open, but I tended to follow the, uh, I tended to follow the dungeons pretty narrowly. Okay. But here, it was... It was this, at the time, massive world. I mean, nowadays, it's obviously considered small, but back then, that was a big deal. I think the one of the most profound memories I ever had was actually the Spirit Temple. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I remember a lot of the game, but... Uh, the other big memory is being terrified of Skulltulas. Yeah, everyone has that one Zelda enemy that kind of creeped them out more than the others did. Mine was the Redeads. Uh, Redeads didn't bother me, but the spiders did. It helps that I never really had a problem with spiders. Mm. You took me until more recently to realize I may be slightly arachnophobic. Mm. Anyway, yeah, Ocarina Time was a was a landmark title. I don't think we need to go over just exactly what it did here. Yeah. Maybe, maybe an episode where we can kind of debate its quality or not. Maybe, but that could be another day. Exactly. The Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask. This one is a divisive title, it was the second release for the Nintendo 64. It is a direct sequel to Ocarina of Time. It also has a 3DS remake. It's my personal favorite of the 3D Zeldas. Mine too. It's my favorite of the entire series, actually, but... I split mine between 2D and 3D. 
Yeah. Well, that's fair because they they are kind of going for different things, but overall, Majora's Mask is my favorite, one of my most favorite games of all time, even. And I that was at the time when I was growing up. I started appreciating darker material more. I don't really know if I caught on until later on that the game was a little dark because I noticed it was a little freaky compared to the last game, but I just kind of just took things as they came. It's like, oh, okay, I guess this is happening in the game now. I kind of got the idea that this was a much different game from Ocarina of Time even when I was younger. What was your first, you know, clue for that? You got turned into a Deku scrub pretty much early on. Okay, so you knew that this would be a game where, like, oh, this is going to be a little different than it used to be. It's going to be a little different. Um, The time system? Funny, it was released the same year that Pokemon Gold and Silver came out in the U.S., which was also out of time mechanic. Oh, yeah, the day and night thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. This game definitely feels more personal than Ocarina of Time, not just for Link, but just... The fact that there's such an emphasis on doing things for the NPCs. Yeah, you have a lot more side quests than this. I believe this Zelda actually has the least amount of dungeons in any of the games. It's possible, because a lot of the focus is on you know doing the side quests. But, to be fair, while that does have only the four dungeons, there are other things like the Pirate Fortress or the Ikana Castle. It's quite a bit you can do outside of the dungeons is what we're saying. Yeah, but, I mean, those are kind of like mini-dungeons. Yeah, I still love going through the ancient castle. I love the theme especially. Oh, yeah. Koji Kondo does a good job with the music. Amen to that. The game is darker than most Zeldas, but not in, like, a gritty way, but more in kind of a somber way. Yeah. Basically, the general idea is that the world is, is actually going to die and be completely destroyed in three days, thanks to the Skull Kid and Majora's Mask. Crushing a moon on it. Game taught me a little bit of math. I figured out the different multiples of 12 because of the countdown. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Uh, This game actually helped with my English, my language comprehension. You know, I got this game the same Christmas as I got Banjo-Tooie. Same. Uh, So, it was was the Christmas of darker sequels. Yeah, it really was. Uh, We we could do an entire Banjo episode another time, but, you know, let's keep all these episode ideas for the future in the future. Amen to that. Majora's Mask, it's my favorite game in the series, even though I didn't really realize that until about three years ago or so. About when the 3DS version came out? Yeah, because that that was when I finally played through the whole thing on my own. And uh, again, Majora's Mask has always been one of my personal favorites, simply because I like its darker tone, but it's a darker tone, but it also does feel a lot more personal. Yeah. (laughs) And despite the darker tone, it is an overall optimistic game, because... You know, by the end, you've helped so many people. You've saved the world. The credits basically show you all the good things you've done. It's just a really nice game, you know? Exactly. So next up in our lineup would be the Oracle games. Yeah, I've only played a little bit of Ages, but I did watch, you know, I did watch and do research on the rest of that game and Seasons. I've played and beaten Ages and Seasons. Alright, so you might have to lead the way a little bit more. That's fine. It was the second and third in the Game Boy lineup. It was one of the last games released for the Game Boy Color. It actually, a slight fun fact here, it was supposed to be three games. I remember hearing about that. But they ended up condensing it down to two and using the password system instead. And I heard that 
Seasons had its start as a remake of the first game, and that's why there's a lot of references to it in the gameplay. A lot of references, and it's also more action-oriented versus Ages, which is a more puzzle-oriented. Yeah. Ages was one of the first portable games I'd ever played, so I always have a little bit of nostalgia in that regard. And I always have a little nostalgia, because this was, again, around the same time Majora's Mask came out. Oh, yeah. We didn't know this at the time, but we found out later that Oracle of Ages and Seasons are actually direct sequels to Link to the Past, believe it or not. Yeah, according to the timeline, you know, and before we get into timeline messiness, let's let's try to keep that out of this. Right, but that's just a little fun fact. Yeah, Oracle it's, of Ages and Seasons are connected. Yeah, they're after A Link to the Past, but also after Link's Awakening, I think. Yes, I believe that's correct. The games themselves are, well, I mean, they both have different gimmicks with them. Oracle of Ages has time travel, Oracle of Seasons has, well, season manipulation. Yeah, but you still do have an alternate world because in Seasons you can go to Subrosia, which is this underground world. You go to Subrosia in Seasons, you're also in a place called Holodrum oh, yeah. in Seasons, and then in Ages you go to Labrinia. Yeah, so either way you still have two worlds because like, you have Labrina of the past and the present, and you have Holodrum and Subrosia in the other game. And, yeah, and those are all separate from Hyrule. However, that one's more stated to be like other lands, not other dimensions. And I believe the games have a secret final battle with Ganon if you can connect the two games together. Which I've actually played and beaten. Yes, it does. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because they brought back Twinrova for that, and for being such an important person in Ganon's backstory, she was only in this game in Ocarina of Time. Yeah, you're right. Well, uh, do we want to mention Majora's Mask? Well, no, because those are different versions. Fair enough. Four Swords... I did eventually play this one when it was on the 3DS. I played it with our friend Nathan. I actually don't have much experience with this game. It's, uh, well, there's not a whole lot to it. It's stage-based. You team up with the other player controlling the other Link, and you eventually beat up Vati at the end. This game was actually packaged in, if you will, with the GBA re-release of Link to the Past. Yeah. So, not a whole lot to say about this one. I, I had fun but only because I was playing it with a friend. You can play it a single player as of the 3DS version, but you don't really want to. Yeah, it's meant it's meant to be a multiplayer Zelda, and I believe this is one of the first ones to implement multiplayer. Yeah. Wind Waker, another big one. Another divisive one at the time as well. This was a shift in graphical fidelity. Rather than being more realistic, for lack of a better term, it went for a more cartoony, cel-shaded look. Yeah, it was... A different art style that was a lot more cartoony, but also it meant that they could afford more expressiveness. And Link is really expressive in that game. Expressiveness. Expression. Whatever it is, it was very divisive at the time because they had the Space World demo of Link and Ganondorf fighting each other, and they looked like very realistic at the time. So to go from that to this... Even I didn't like it at first, but it grew on me by the second time I saw it. Uh, I actually played Wind Waker, uh, actually as a rental, believe it or not, and it, the style grew on me. It really did. Yeah. It's still got a kind of serious story, but it's just goofy enough that I can appreciate it. Yeah. It was very bold story that I didn't really appreciate at the time, but now like I really like what they were trying to do. They're trying to kind of, you know, say that you can't keep clinging on to Hyrule in the past forever. You've got to move on eventually. Stuff like that. This is also when I was getting older, so I actually started trying to piece together the timeline 
once Wind Waker came out. Yeah, this was one of the first games to explicitly point out that there was more than one Link. There's more than one Link, because uh, this Link is the Hero of the Winds. The one in Ocarina of Time is the Hero of Time. Yeah, Ocarina of Time is referenced quite a bit in this one. This is also the one that's set on what's known as the Great Sea after a great flood. Yeah, so it's a very ocean-based game. There's a lot of sailing, which is considered a low point for a lot of people until the Wii U version. I actually had no issue with the sailing. I didn't really mind it either, but I can see why people would have issues with it. Yeah, I can see why. It just never bothered me. Yeah. A lot of stylized things in this game. The explosions were very fun to look at. Oh, they were. They're one of the best parts about it. I think this was also when I finally noticed the trend of using dungeon items to beat the bosses. That started way back in Link to the Past, but yeah, that happens here. Yeah, this is Well, this is when I started to notice it. Four Swords Adventures. This is a GameCube... Well, okay, we should have said this with uh, Wind Waker. Wind Waker was the first GameCube Zelda... Four Swords Adventures was the second one. Now, I have an interesting history with this one. I never owned the game. A friend of mine let me borrow it, and I beat it solo. I also played it solo, because playing this multiplayer, which was the way it was meant to be played, by the way, it required way too much. Okay, to put it in perspective, it required someone to own the game, a GameCube, four Link cables, and four Game Boy Advances. Yeah. Or three if one of them, one of you wanted to use the controller. Yeah. But that's the only way you're able to play this with multiplayer. Uh, put it this way, if you ever watch the Runaway Guys play it, just listen to the setup they had to do in order to record the thing. It's ridiculous. Yeah, this makes it one of the few Zelda games that can't be replayed on any new console, whether it be a recent release or a digital download or anything, because it's just connected to the weird control style. The game itself is nothing to write home about, if I may be so honest here. It's fine on its own. It uses a lot of assets from Wind Waker, but also a lot of music from Link to the Past. Yeah, and it goes for a more of a stage-based thing, a lot like Four Swords did. Well, I mean, it is kind of a semi-sequel, isn't it? Yeah, it's connected to Four Swords. It's part of the Four Swords trilogy, which is kind of weird because it's not a true trilogy. It's just three games with a lot of similar themes, and they're all in different places in the Zelda timeline. This is actually the latest of the three. It's... Somewhere in proximation to Twilight Princess, actually. Right. Yeah, it's a good game, but it's kind of one of the weaker ones. Even though it kind of has a lot of nostalgia for me anyway, just because that was around the time I was really fond of Nintendo Power and I was reading about it in there. (laughs) Minish Cap. Which is one of the... uh, It's a Game Boy Advance Zelda game. This is the first original Game Boy Advance Zelda game. Yeah. This one I have no experience with, believe it or not. So... I'll have to take control here. Minish Cat is another one of the Four Swords games, and it used to be my favorite in the series. Now it might be my second or third because of Majora's Mask and Twilight Princess. I spent more time with them, but still a great game. It's It's got a little more going on than you would first think from a Game Boy Zelda game. A lot of original ideas like the fact that Link shrinks down for a lot of things to the size of a little bug person... Like I said, I have no experience with this. This was during the time where I was going through my Metroid phase. Alright, so you didn't do any research or anything at any point? Only thing I remember is the gust jars in it. Oh yeah, that was one of the new items introduced in the game. It's a pretty straightforward thing, you know, Vati shows up. It's kind of an it's kind of an origin story for him, 
and the Four Sword itself. This is actually, like I said, I don't want to keep a lot of timeline talk in here, but I'm going to say that this is about the second game in the entire series, actually. It actually does come after Skyward Sword, yes. Yeah, it's either the second or the third, but it's very uh, early in there. If I remember correctly, it's Skyward Sword, Four Sword, then Minish Cap. Yes, it, it's either the second or the third. It's a very solid game, and I think if you can get it on the Wii U eShop or you still have your Game Boy, you should look for it, because I think it's kind of overlooked compared to the other games in the series. I actually still have my GBA. I may have to take a look for it. Next one up on the list is Twilight Princess, and this was a yet another landmark title, much like Ocarina of Time. Yeah, it came out for the GameCube, but it also overlapped with the release of the Nintendo Wii, so they made a version for that console as well. Twilight Princess is... It's another dark dark Zelda game, but not in the way Majora's Mask is. I mean, the color palette's a lot darker here, too. Yeah, it's, it's more subdued colors and more of the grittiness that Majora's Mask lacked. A lot of people really liked it and saw it as kind of an apology for the art style of Wind Waker, which I feel is unnecessary. But I, I do think the sentiment has stuck because all the main 3D Zelda games since then, all two of them have stuck with adult link and somewhat of a realistic style, albeit stylized. Do you have anything to say about Twilight Princess? Um, actually, this is gonna be kind of... I know a lot of people consider this kind of sacrilegious, if you will. I think it's trying too hard to be Ocarina of Time 2. Oh, yeah, I, I can definitely see that. It's really following in a lot of the footsteps of it. I mean, granted, the Twilight Realm itself is unique enough. Kind of. You, you only go there properly once... Well, it's te- it is a separate dimension, but it's mostly shown as more like a corruption. Yeah. Now, Link can turn into a wolf in this game, and that's pretty cool, but I'd like to point out that of all the main 3D Zeldas, this is the only one that I feel like didn't really try to introduce anything brand new. It's more of a refinement of past features, which is also why I'm okay with it being similar to Ocarina of Time, because it's kind of... You know, updating it a little bit, adding a little more flourish to it. It's also the only game where you can run and swing your sword at the same time. Is it the only one? I believe so, yes. Uh, I'd have to check Skyward Sword again. Uh, Skyward Sword, you can't. You Uh, literally stop moving. Yeah. But yeah, this game really kind of goes for more of a gritty medieval type thing, but it's still got its moments of silliness, and it's got, you know, fun gameplay to it. And Minda, one of the main characters there, actually has a character arc. That I really enjoy watching. Yeah, Link's sidekick of the week this time is an imp named Midna, and she's one of the more fondly remembered characters in the series, to the point where she was one of the first guest characters introduced in Hyrule Warriors. She's also in the Smash Brothers series. Yeah, as an assist character. So she's popular, even though, you know, not my favorite. She starts out as an absolute jerk. Yeah, she kind of has the similar arc to Tattle from Majora's Mask, where they don't really like Link at first, but by the end, they're total buds. Right. Except Mendes, I think, is a lot more pronounced, and it's also a lot easier to see, which I really appreciate. With a lot of the cinematic approach they take with this game, Hyrule does feel lived in, even if the fields are a little empty. Yeah, it does. And I like... I'm just going to say this now. I, I really like the items... Even if they're not the most useful items, the ball and chain is great. 
The double claw shots. That was a fun part right there. I love that. Yeah. Maybe I would have introduced them in maybe the sixth dungeon instead of the seventh dungeon, but what are you going to do? And even though the spinner was a little hyper-situational, it was still fun when it worked. Uh, the boss fight in the um, Arbiter's Grounds. Boss fight in the Arbiter's Grounds using the spinner against Stalwart was one of my most fun moments of that game. Oh, yeah. It was great. This was before Breath of the Wild came out. This was the last of the 3D Zelda games that I finished because I used to have a pretty bad track record with that. I beat Ocarina of Time for the 3DS, then I beat Skyward Sword, then Wind Waker on Wii U, then the Majora's Mask on 3DS, then finally Twilight Princess on Wii U, so... I got more mileage out of the remakes, I guess. I actually beat this game originally for the GameCube. Before then, I actually used a strategy guide for most of my Zelda games because I was kind of a dumb kid. Mm. But this was the first game I was able to get everything in without resorting to a strategy guide. Mm. I like how it's on the GameCube, the Wii, and the Wii U. So if they add a Switch version for some reason, that'll make the 64 as the most recent home console to not have Twilight Princess. <laughs> you got a point there. That's kind of hilarious to think about. Next up is Phantom Hourglass. I have a, I have very little experience with the DS Zelda games, but this one is a direct sequel to Wind Waker. Yeah, it's a lot different. I only really played through it once ten years ago. I've been trying to play through it again recently... But I'm not really having the willpower to do it. I've kind of said that this was one of the weaker games in the series. And a lot of people would agree with you. It's, again, one of those very divisive ones. Yeah. Like, either hate it, or you're okay with it. There's no loving it. It's just hate it, or okay. At least in my experience, because, you know, for one thing, I don't like the music in the game. A lot of it is just generic, like, eight-second loops. The other thing is, the this was... One of the first Nintendo DS titles, so they really want you to use the touch screen. In fact, I believe it's used for practically everything. Yeah, that's the other thing. Is that's more important than the music, but that just kind of shows where my attention goes. But the touch controls at the time I didn't mind them, but now that I'm revisiting the game after playing A Link Between Worlds and other games, it's like, oh come on, I can't just use the cross pad for moving just a little bit. I have to do everything with touch. It's, it makes for some inventive use of the items, but I think they did go a little overboard with it. That They were trying to really sell the Nintendo DS. That's why they did that. Like, yeah, because they wanted to justify like, hey, look, we have this thing you can do. Go on and do it. That being said, Linebeck is apparently actually one of the more popular Zelda characters. Oh, yeah, he's pretty cool. So. He, he, was, he was one of your helpers in this game. There's also the Temple of the Ocean King, which was a new feature. It was a dungeon that you would have to take breaks from. You would go through it after every main dungeon. You'd go through a few extra layers, and then you would leave, and then you'd come back, and you'd make a bit more progress in it as you needed to until you finally get to the bottom at the end of the game. So it's kind of a super dungeon. Kind of, but it's a lot more straightforward. It's just kind of solve the puzzle on this floor, go on to the next one, but there's stealth elements because you have to avoid the phantoms who are going to one-shot you and take away a good amount of your time because you're on a timer in that dungeon. Right, right. I remember that. Spirit Tracks is another DS game, and it's very similar to Phantom Hourglass, but it changes a lot of it to be 
a little more palpable, but if you despised everything about Phantom Hourglass, you probably didn't get much out of Spirit Tracks either. This one's a little bit weird for me. I don't have much experience. I played the very beginning of it when I was in Afghanistan. Okay. I played through the whole game once. You, you kind of see a pattern with me in the DS games. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is the second and final DS Zelda game. It's another direct sequel to Phantom Hourglass in this case, but it's set 100 years later. Yeah, it's definitely meant to evoke a lot of things about Phantom Hourglass because you have the touch controls again, you have recycled character models and control ideas. They do introduce more new items, and the storyline is a little more complex this time. The main dungeon is the Tower of Spirits, which is similar to the Temple of the Ocean King, but this time you don't have to redo past sections, and you have Zelda's ghost helping you out, and she can control the phantoms sometimes, so you kind of have to go back and forth between the two of them to cooperate. Right. Again, I didn't play very much of it. I was too busy trying to stay alive overseas. What? what you didn't have time for spirit tracks over there? <laughs> no! I Zelda didn't. needs you! She, she had her body taken away. She's a ghost now. I'm trying not to become a ghost! Well, then you can control the phantoms, though. You can help Link through the dungeon. Oh, good. But yeah, this is one of the most active games Zelda has been in. She she's, pre- she's pretty much your sidekick this time, and she's almost never been that. Uh, the last time we saw her doing anything real significant was, I believe, Ocarina of Time. Well, I mean, right before that, there was Twilight Princess, where she was uh, aiming... Oh, that's a good point, too. She was aiming light arrows at Ganon, and she was the first phase of the final battle, even. Uh, she was aiming poorly at Ganon, but that's beside the point. Yeah. Anyway, Spirit Tracks. Don't have much to say about this one in my case. Uh, those two games I will probably never revisit. Eh. Spirit Tracks kind of gave me some headaches because I had a really hard time with a lot of the puzzles and stuff, and I didn't like the controlling the train, but I do think that it improved in some important areas. But you'll notice that they haven't gone back to touch-exclusive controls since then. Not on any Nintendo game, not just Zelda specifically. Skyward Sword. Yet another landmark title, because this one is celebrating the 25th anniversary of the series. Yeah, and it was the only Zelda game to be exclusive for the Wii. Right, it's not like Twilight Princess, where it was on the Wii and the GameCube. This one was specifically for the Wii. It was also one of the few Wii titles that required the Wii Motion Plus. It was a divisive Zelda title, and you'll notice that a lot of these past few ones in a row have all been divisive. I think the Oracle games are... Or the last ones... No, uh, according to this list, Four Swords is probably the most recent one that wasn't really divisive. And, like, no one really cared about Four Swords. Ever since then, all of them in a row have had some amount of controversy to them. I actually would disagree and say Twilight Princess, because most people enjoyed that one, but... I've, I've heard I've heard a lot of complaints about it, but they say that Zelda kind of has... Kind of up there with, like, Final Fantasy, where no one can really agree which game is the best. Right, everyone has their own preferences. Anyway, Skyward Sword... Uh, this one I got as a Christmas gift in 2011. This is the I also got the version that came with the CD of music that was remixed by the London Symphony Orchestra specifically for the 25th anniversary. Yeah. I also got it under a similar circumstance, but and I don't know how or why this happened, but it kept having trouble reading the disc. Oh. So eventually we just tried to get a new Wii, because we figured that it was kind of getting old and dirty anyway, and 
we did eventually get a new Wii, but I think the game was also kind of, like, there was something wrong with the disc, too. So we had to get a new copy of the game itself. So it wasn't until summer that I was finally able to play Skyward Sword. And, like, we, we met each other by then. This was finally around the time that we kind of entered each other's lives. You, you, you'd you remember me saying how much I wanted to play Skyward Sword and how frustrated I was that I couldn't play it. And I think I mentioned that I had played it, but I didn't care for it because I really didn't like motion controls. Yeah, uh, I'm curious about that. Why don't you like motion controls? Honestly, I'm not entirely certain. I think it's not motion controls specifically. I think it's just specifically the Wii's motion controls, which are very temperamental. Now, I've I've heard a lot that of... That and I also tend to sit at weird angles from the TV, so I can't really get a direct on. Okay, that's... I can kind of see that. The, the controls were fine for me most of the time. There's only one moment in the game where it was really bad for me. Well, Skyward Sword has... Its own host of problems. I have beaten the game. I did too. So, I mean, we can talk about that. It is the one that's supposed to be the start of everything. This is the game that starts the legend as we know it. Yeah, it's the first Zelda game chronologically, so it kind of is meant to lay the groundwork for things to happen in future games or past games. And I think what it did is it muddled everything a little too much. In what way? We already had three goddesses. We didn't need a fourth one. Did we not need a fourth one? Well, we already had the three goddesses and the creation myth, and then you add Hylia to the mix. Well, I mean, the name had to come from somewhere, and it does, you know, go away towards explaining why Zelda and her lineage is so important. And, you know, we've had... Do we really needed Zelda to have divine blood in her? Well, I mean, that's a common conception in rulers in past in history and you know it kind of explains why she's so important you know because she's always been important so you know getting a little backstory behind that and i suppose you're right we've had mythological figures besides the three goddesses in other zelda games there were the four light spirits in twilight princess okay you're right there tattle makes an offhand reference to a goddess of time at majora's mask not to mention the giants the giants in majora's mask but i think those were specific to termina well, yeah but I'm just saying that I don't think they really set the rules for, you know, a minimum number of goddesses. True. Uh, what I like most about Skyward Sword is it showed the creation of the Master Sword. Yeah, that was interesting. I like that. And it also doesn't sh- it also doesn't have you switch swords like in some of the other games. You get the Master, well, at the time it's called the Goddess Sword, pretty early on. Yeah. And you keep it for the rest of the game. And it eventually becomes the Master Sword. Right. Actually, what's really funny is it becomes the Master Sword, then it gets upgraded one more time, becomes the true Master Sword. Yeah. Now, as much as I defend the motion controls, I do think that they went a little overboard making everything reliant on the motion controls. Well, Metroid Prime 3 did that, too, and that was a launch title. Okay. What I'm saying is that's, that's the same thing that happened with the Nintendo DS, is they had this new thing that they wanted to do, so they were trying to push it. But... This was toward the end of the Wii's lifestyle. Exactly. Why did they need to do that? Well, yeah, I'm saying this was one of the problems of the game, is that they went a little overboard with it. I think some of the padding is a little bit nonsensical at times as well. I'm not one of those Zelda players who thinks that everything that's not exploration and dungeon is just padding, but I do agree that there is some padding in the game and that they could have done with streamlining a few things, like the water dragon. Every time you meet her, all she does is make you do chores because they don't want to give you the next part of the plot too easily. Why not? You know, she was such a jerk. Why? Instead of making her... Link should have just said, I'm not doing chores for you anymore, and then just turn her into a boss fight. 
<laughs> just be like, you know it's what? It's like something out of a banjo game. It really is. Like, you know what? I'm tired of doing chores for you. Because that's what the hero does. <laughs> well, okay, to be fair, this is not the first Link. Well, yeah. There actually is a manga in the Hyrule Historia. Oh, yeah, this also coincides with the release of the Hyrule Historia. That shows that this is not the first Link. Yeah, I don't know how much of that is canonical, but... It, it, well, the manga's in the Hyrule Historia, so... Yeah. I want to say it's probably canon. Or, or at least it's, you know, enjoyed by the creators. I like the game. I think it gets a bit of a bad rep. Choga Conroy apparently agrees, you know, as if he's the final word. Yeah, I know. I actually watched the Straw Hat No play through it, and while at the end they really didn't, uh, Thorne didn't like it, he did go back and say that he still enjoyed it, despite some of the gripes he had with it. Yeah, th- this is a game that I was a little worried about, actually, for me. It's like, hmm, what if I don't like this as much when I go back to it now that I've played the others, but... Now that I've played Breath of the Wild, I feel a little more confident in liking Skyward Sword. Okay, fair enough. And they, and they have some good gameplay decisions in here, like being able to pick up bombs and then store them. Oh, yeah. like That was pretty cool. I actually liked the stamina meter and like the different shields and the durability. You can argue that one way or the other. It, it's more fair in one than it needs to be, but that's okay. Yeah, well, you know, and then, Breath of, course, of the Wild went ham with it. And then when you get to the Hylian Shield at the very end of Skyward Sword, it's just infinite durability. Yeah, it's a good reward. Getting the thing's a pain in the butt, but that's beside the point. No, no, you just have to do the boss rush, which I like the boss fight, so I don't mind that as much. You, can, you have to do the boss rush, but it's randomized, so, I mean, good luck getting a boss that's e- getting a set of eight bosses that's easy. Well, I mean, it's just all the bosses so far, pretty much. Yeah, fair enough. But we have a lot to say about this game because this is probably one of the ones we disagree the most strongly on. And yet, and yet another divisive one. Yeah, I'm telling you, this series gets very divisive as it goes. But one game we probably agree more on is A Link Between Worlds. This is actually the direct sequel to A Link to the Past, released in 2013 for the Nintendo 3DS. Yeah. It's not the first Zelda game on the 3DS, but it is the first original Zelda game on the 3DS. Yeah. Though original is kind of a strong word because it takes a lot of the spirit from A Link to the Past. It does its own stuff with it, and it's very enjoyable in its own right. It's a good evolution of that game, but it is very similar. It's very similar, but again, as Link to the Past is one of my nostalgia all-time favorites, I don't mind that. No. I mean, like I said, it does evolve it a little more. Like, Low Rule is straight-up, non-linear... Go do the dungeons in any order you want, with one exception. And then you go back to Link to the Past, and you think the Dark World is like that, but it's actually a little more linear than you'd first believe. It's a little more linear, but it's still pretty open. But yeah, all rule is essentially, I can't believe it's not the Dark World. Yeah. I think it does kind of stand on its own without relying on a Link to the Past entirely, but... The thing is, this came out at a time where people were a lot more doubtful of Nintendo's abilities than they are now. Skyward Sword was still the popular target, and then there were Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks right before that. Uh, going outside of Zelda for a minute, other, Metroid Other M was the last Metroid game released. Yeah, and, and... People really didn't like that, but that's for another time. And the Mario games were getting a little homogenous. Paper Mario Sticker Star was also a thing. A lot of Nintendo series were kind of going through a bit of a dark age, if you'd ask certain people, so... Link Between Worlds was a breath of fresh air. Kind of. In a manner of speaking. Like, the merge mechanic is definitely neat. 
But what I'm saying is that the fact that this game came out around that time and that it borrows so much from A Link to the Past, I kind of read it as that they were having trouble thinking of new ideas. But uh, It could also be like a, like a return to form sort of thing. Like, they saw what had happened, and people were doubtful of their ability, so they decided to go with something that was safe, because people still really like Link to the Past. So they decided to go back to that to regenerate interest. It's like with Star Wars more recently. Oh, like Episode 7? Episode 7 went back to the format of Episode 4, because they saw what the prequels did, and how people didn't like it. So they did that to regenerate trust. Alright, I can kind of see it like that, and... Like I said, Nintendo has fallen back into the good graces of its fans, so hey, maybe it worked. It probably worked, and there's definitely been a series of good games coming out from Nintendo more recently, so I'd say you're probably right. But well, going back to controversy, Triforce Heroes, which I talked about in depth back in episode 12. So probably don't need to go over this one. I actually played it a little bit, both on my own and with uh, Alex here. Yeah, we played it together. I'm pretty sure I mentioned our adventures with Ronnie. Yes. Um, it's it's a direct sequel to Link Between Worlds, but it's a very loose one. Yeah, it's like, it just happens to be after that game. It, yeah, it just happens to be afterward. It's not really connected to anything. It's, it's a multiplayer experience. I think it's the first game to lack Zelda since uh, possibly... I don't, I don't remember if she was in Four Swords. I think she was, so... She was mentioned in Four Swords. Okay. So Actually, she was in Four Swords, come to think of it. Okay. So the first game since Majora's Mask to not feature Zelda... Or Ganon. Oh, no. Ganon wasn't in either of the DS games. Oh, you're right. But this is the he first... He was barely in A Link to Between Worlds. Uh, he was He was barely... Actually, he wasn't in Skyward Sword either. Oh, oh, yeah, that's true. So, yeah, Ganon's been sitting out for a while. Yeah, but yeah, Triforce Heroes is... It's one of those games that if you don't play it, you're not missing out, because... It's really just a multiplayer experience. Yeah. And yeah. in my personal opinion, the single player needed a lot of touching up. They meant for you to play this with friends. But that does not excuse the fact that the single player is pretty bad. Three is kind of an awkward number for this kind of thing. I get why they did it, because, you know, the Triforce and the fact that it's easier to design puzzles for three people than four people. Because if you made it four, one, that's four swords adventures, and two, and then you have the square force. Well it's, well, it's not even just for, like, the awkwardness of being, like, the Four Swords game. It's just that it'd be more work to have the extra person around, plus the totem mechanic would make two people useless instead of one person... Okay, well, the middle totem isn't the useless player because, you know, you need that middle phase, but then when you have two people on the middle totem, it gets kind of weird. Right. Uh, that being said, Triforce Heroes does have the clothing mechanic where your abilities change depending on what you're wearing. Yeah, and that's kind of fun, actually. Right, get, seeing all the different outfits you can get and kind of experimenting with your loadout and what, if you will, and whatnot. This is also the first Zelda game to be to have online multiplayer. Yeah, and they bring the clothing stuff back in Breath of the Wild, even if it's downplayed. Well, it's pro I haven't played Breath of the Wild, so I would imagine it's probably more like Skyrim, where it's more like armor that makes that yeah, is important. But they have effects, and still, it's a thing that happened in one game before Breath of the Wild, so I thought it was worth mentioning. Fair enough. But yeah, Triforce Heroes. If you play it, you're if you play it and you play it with friends, you're probably gonna have a good time. If you play it on your own, you're gonna be frustrated. If you skip it, you're not missing out on much. Finally, Breath of the Wild, 
a game I've talked about in the first episode of this show, even, and then again with my brother. You've mentioned not playing it. So. I this is actually one that I'm really wanting to play simply because well, it's a Zelda game, but it's also like Skyrim, which I've been on a kick with lately. But financial obligations have pre- prevented me from doing so. I think you'd like this game. I think you'd like it a lot. I've heard really good things about it. Oh yeah, people love this game. I like it. Now tell us how you really feel. <laughs> well, you could go listen to other episodes. Yeah, you would. You... Subscribe to the podcast so you can hear his uh, first episode, which is uh, Breath of the Wild, and then the follow-up with his brother. <laughs> oh, thanks. Just do my plugging for me. <laughs> but, yeah, Breath of the Wild has the dubious honor of being the first Zelda game I've legit quit on because I I just couldn't jive with the style of the game and what they were doing. I think it had a lot of good ideas that I want to see them keep doing, but I would prefer a little more traditional gameplay. What I'm seeing from it is it's trying to go back to the Zelda 1 idea of an open-world exploration, but it also has durability, which is more similar to older Fire Emblems. A lot more focus on survival. Which is definitely more of a Skyrim slash Fallout mechanic. Or Minecraft, if you're looking for that sort of thing. A lot of survival games recently. I feel like what it does for the first Zelda is kind of what A Link Between Worlds does for A Link to the Past, where they take the common conception of the older game and then just flesh it out and make it even bigger for the new game. That's probably accurate. A lot of people would say it's a new game. Others would see it as a return to form. Yeah. Which is what I already said about A Link Between Worlds, but that's beside the point. Yeah, and... This game, and the fact that it came out for the Switch at like launch, we were both there when it happened. I actually, yeah, taking you to the uh, midnight release. Yeah, so this game could kind of be seen as the beginning of Nintendo's current, really, I don't know if I'd say golden age, but they're doing really well for themselves I right would now. Say, I would say, if not a golden age, I would say a silver age at the very least, because the Switch is the best-selling console right now. And in fact, it's getting a lot of third-party support. Skyrim's on the Switch now, for, as an example. But Breath of the Wild is already on the Switch. Switch. I know. Okay, but... No, yeah. they're getting a lot of third-party support for the Switch. Yeah, so this game is, on top of being really good for the people who like this kind of thing is also a little synonymous with the turning point in Nintendo moving up after the Wii U didn't do what they wanted. Uh, Actually, you can argue that all the way back to the GameCube, really, because GameCube didn't really have much third-party support either. Well, uh, the Wii was very popular. The Wii was, yeah, but still, it didn't have third-party support for the more hardcore crowd. No, but... You get what I'm saying, though, is that this game is kind of marked... It's, kind with... of, it's, it's a mark of return to form for Nintendo. Yeah, because since then, they've been doing a lot of really good games for the Switch. Like Mario Odyssey, which probably would have won Game of the Year if this game didn't come out. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, the Zelda series, we love it. We love it a little differently from each other, but we love it all the same. We've both pretty much grown up with the series. Um, a lot of fond memories... A lot of not-so-fond memories. A lot of scares. Yeah, a lot of thrills. Some sad things sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, I was originally sad at the end of Twilight Princess. I was really happy after the end of Majora's Mask. Right. It, it's it been fun. It's been a very fun ride so far with the Zelda series. Oh, yeah. Like, if Mario didn't exist, it would be my favorite series. And it will be my favorite, probably for all... Probably for Until I Die. Uh, okay. And heck, in the afterlife, I'll probably be playing it still. It's like, Alex, 
Play the new Zelda game. Okay, Henry, you can get away from me now. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that was our role play as each other after Henry dies. <laughs> yes. But this may be one of the longest episodes of the BitCast, and I apologize if you have something else you need to be doing, but we're going to let you go now. Is there any shout-outs you'd like to give? No. Okay. Well, as Henry has mentioned previously, there are other episodes of the BitCast where I talk about other Zelda games more thoroughly, and, you know, other non-Zelda games too, and they're available on iTunes if you don't want to listen on the Podcast One website. But anyway, I have been the Axeman, he has been Henry the Guest, and we will see you later. Listen to BitCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.